Good morning, everyone. How are you going? Uh, it's good to be back in Australia and good to be back at home. And it's great to be sharing the word with you guys this morning. Hey, can I ask, can we stand as I read the, the um, scripture this morning? For the last time in this series, we are going to read this scripture out of Galatians 5. And it, uh, it is Galatians 5, 16. It says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit and you are, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will never inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You guys can find your seat. Uh, You should probably kind of know that nearly off by heart after this is the ninth week because there's nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, if you didn't pick it up, we are speaking on self-control. And uh, I'm sure as you are hearing that, you're like over the moon. You're like, come on, cannot wait to hear about self-control. Who doesn't love a good message on self-control? Am I right? You're really controlling yourselves with your excitement. That's great self-control. But uh, we kind of think about this topic and we think nobody needs to be reminded about how much we lack in self-control. Like we're in the second day of summer and we have to put on our swimwear soon. We are reminded of our lack of self-control all year. No one needs to remind us of this. But the good news is this. Like every other characteristic that we have talked about in the fruit of the Spirit and that we've studied and we've continued to say over the last two months, this is not dependent on you. It might sound like it, self-control. It might sound like it's dependent on you, but really it is an outcome of the growth of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that is freeing. That is freeing to hear that I'm not just going to stand up here and tell you to do better this morning. I'm not going to do that. Uh, But we will define what self-control is and what it's not. Supernatural self-control is not just willpower. It's not just willpower. It's not just willing yourself to do something. Uh, If it was, I think I would be quite high in this category because um, uh, when I went to pre-marriage counselling, the lovely thing you do before you get married and you talk about all the wonderful things that marriage is going to bring, we came to this session uh, where they said, now, let's be honest with each other. Share with each other the things that you'd like each other to work on. And I said, oh, I don't want Luke to work on anything. He's, he's perfect. And, uh, and then I look over lovingly at him and he goes, oh, I've got one thing. 
was like, news to me. And he goes, you are kind of stubborn. I was baffled. Anyway, I'm stubborn. So I decided in that moment, I would be so stubborn to show him how unstubborn I am from that moment on. I'm pretty good at willpower and anyone who is in close proximity with me will know that I'm kind of stubborn and Lord help me. Uh, But that is not the kind of thing we're talking about this morning that I... It's my will, I'll do it in my power, and I'm going to get it done, and I'm just going to grip my teeth. Uh, We're not talking about that self-control, but when it comes to supernatural self-control, and if you're taking notes, write that down, make sure that you don't leave it out, that it's just self-control. It's supernatural self-control. It's not a matter of willpower, because anything that is done out of sheer willpower will not produce supernatural fruit. Our willpower will not produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit produces self-control. And the reason that we know that our willpower is not the self-control that Paul's talking about is because if we look at willpower, uh, there's only two results that can come from willpower. Two outcomes. The first is this, pride. You can get it done. Look at what I've done. Look at what I could withstand all by myself, pride. And the second outcome is shame. I couldn't do it. I tried my hardest. I gave it my best and I still couldn't do it. If willpower is the only thing that is gearing us into self-control, it will not result in fruit of the Spirit. It will result in pride or shame. So supernatural self-control is not willpower, will in your power, it's surrender to his will in his power. His will in his power. Now, as I say that, I'm sure you're beginning to click over some things in your mind that you wish that you didn't choose your willpower, but God's will in his power. There's some circumstances, some outcomes in your life where you can think and go, I wish I did it different. Well, the question we want to answer as we move on today is how do we move from our will in our power into his will in his power? How do we get there? Sounds like a lofty kind of uh, ideal or some grandeur. But I want to use two stories this morning from the Old Testament. Two stories to illustrate two different scenarios, but that will help us answer this question. We up for that? We in? All right, Isaiah. Isaiah, we're going to read a story from Isaiah. And it comes in Isaiah 6. And who is the main character? Isaiah. And, uh, and he is this young guy who's he's kind of affluent. He's really well esteemed. He's a communicator, so he, so he can speak really well. And in a culture where you don't have PowerPoint presentations and, and you don't have print, communication, oral communication is really highly esteemed. And so that's a great skill that he has. And it mentions that he had, uh, he was kind of a bit of a prideful young man at this stage. And in Isaiah 6, we read that he goes into the temple, he goes to church, and he experiences a vision. We read it in Isaiah 6, follow along if you want to. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the sephirim, each with six wings, that's heavenly beings, with two wings that covered their faces and two wings that covered their feet, and the other two, they were flying. 
And they were calling to one, other, one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the very thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Whoa, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. If you're following along in your Bible, underline, I have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. What are we seeing here? Isaiah has encountered God. He has encountered God. He walked into church and the last thing he was expecting was to encounter God. He walks in and he has this vision and he's trying to describe it with words. It's kind of, it's kind of like if you have this awesome experience or you go to this great concert or something and you're just trying to explain it to everyone. Like, oh, you should have seen what they were wearing or, and it did this and it did that. That's what Isaiah's doing. He's like, you should have seen his robe. Oh, the robe he was wearing. It filled the temple. Every holy party is robe. And the angels, six wings. Six wings these angels had. And he describes what happens when God's presence comes down and it says everything shook. There was smoke. And what is he trying to describe here? Not just an experience. He's trying to describe the glory of God. He's trying to put words and language around the glory of God. And what I want us to see in this story today, in this first story, is the result of what happens when we experience God's glory. We read that this young affluent, like confident, cool young guy, walks into church and in a moment he experiences God and he changes his tune and says, Woe to me, I am ruined. Everything that I knew before has changed. And here he is, he's experienced the glory of God and something's changed. What, what happened? Well, the word here for glory is the word kavod. Kavod. Uh, and which is translated, which means weight or heaviness or importance. Weight, heaviness or importance. So he's saying the whole earth, the, what I'm experiencing now is I'm experiencing your weight, your heaviness and in your importance. Which makes sense because when the glory came down, everything shook. Everything shook. The doorpost shook. The foundation shook. The temple was shaking as God's glory came down. And everywhere, in fact, when you read that God's glory comes down in the Bible, you will see that that area shook. The temple shook. The mountain shook. God's glory shakes everywhere it goes. Because whenever something with more weight than something else impacts the other, the heavier object will cause the lesser object to quake. And that was what was happening. That is what Isaiah was experiencing. He was experiencing the weight of God crashing into his life. Let me illustrate it like this. If you have a large body of water, but then you take a huge, heavy object much bigger than the body of water, and you drop it into the water. The heavier object will make a water quake. It will make a flood. It changes everything about the water that it was. 
If you drop a heavier object on a smaller bit of ice, the same thing, an ice quake will happen. And what we're seeing here is a change take place in Isaiah because he's experiencing something heavier than himself coming into his life. Notice that Isaiah didn't respond with, oh, there really is a God. How about that? He didn't do that. You know why? Because he already believed there was a God. But God only existed as a concept to him. Now he experienced the reality of God. And so we see this moment where Isaiah moves from having a concept of God, an idea of God, even a belief. But when the weight came into his life, he experienced the reality of God. You see, some of us in here, we could be sitting here with a concept of God today. And you see, we only have a concept of God, if we only have a concept of God in our lives, it doesn't hold much weight. It really doesn't. It's kind of like taking that same body of water that I was just talking about and throwing a ping pong ball in. And there's my concept. And it doesn't really change anything, but it kind of attaches itself. A concept is light. It doesn't hold much weight. It's movable. It's changeable. And in fact, a concept of God doesn't change you. You get to change it. You get to change it according to your cultural moment, according to what might not offend somebody, according to what might be comfortable. A concept of God can be changed and moved and can be malleable into your plans and your agenda. God concepts, they're able to fit into agendas, they're able to fit into plans, and it doesn't, it definitely doesn't change you. Doesn't hold enough weight to change you. A God concept allows you to just pick and choose the aspects about him that you agree with and that you don't agree with, and you can adapt it to your life. Plenty of people do this. Plenty of people see what's happening in the church or in Christians' lives and they think, Huh, I saw that that guy got a little more peace. I saw that guy got a little more strength. And they think, I'll just get a bit religious. Just to get ahead, I'll start praying to give me a bit more peace. Or I'll start going ahead, I'll start going to this so I get a little bit more discipline. And we just add a concept to God, a concept of God to our lives so we can get ahead. But, but that's not what we're seeing here. What we need is an experience of God where you can no longer fit him into your agenda, but he becomes your agenda. He comes in and the weight of him is so heavy that you would, you would exclaim, I'm ruined from what I was before. I'm completely ruined. Because when the reality, when a reality, when you encounter God, like Isaiah did in this vision, the reality of God's glory is so much heavier than you. That it comes in and it quakes your life. It changes it. It makes waves. It rearranges it and it moves it around. You don't change it. It changes you. It changes you. And I want to point out here as I'm speaking about the word change, 
change, change, change. Because what we're actually seeing Paul describe in the fruits of the Spirit is he makes a whole list of things that the flesh wants. I don't know, maybe I'll list it off your weekend activities. But he, he, is, he lists all these things of the flesh. And then he says, can we make a change through the Spirit? And so what he's talking about in the fruit of the Spirit is making a change. And I want to point out here that when uh, he said the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God is living inside of you, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, change is inevitable. You cannot have the Spirit of life living in you and not experience growth in the fruit of the Spirit. The reason or the way that you will know whether he is alive and well in you is do, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? It is inevitable that where he is alive, that there will be growth. There must be growth. And Paul uses the metaphor of growth like a tree because you know what? It's slow and gradual. Slow. Have you ever tried to watch an apple grow? It's slow and gradual. You can hardly tell it's happening. And Paul uh, actually uses the word um, fruit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is the nine characteristics. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit with nine characteristics. And so if the Spirit is alive in you, all nine characteristics will be growing in you. Together, interchangeably, interdependent, are dependent of each other. They will be growing. You never see an orange say, you know what? I'm just going to grow the pulp. That's what. That's all I want. Or I'm just going to grow the skin and some seeds. It'll be kind of like a rattle. kind of. No, a fruit, one fruit, grows together. And the fruit of the Spirit, if you have the Spirit living in you, you should see growth in every single area of these characteristics of your life. And do not mistake a personality trait for growth in the Spirit. Your temperament might be, I'm a really kind person. And so you might see that you're, I'm not saying I'm really kind, I'm just, it's an example. Um, I'm a really kind person, Uh, but you have no patience for anyone. That can't be the fruit of the Spirit. That's just a personality trait. They have to go together. To be kind, you must be patient. And you might be a really loyal friend as a personality trait or just because you like it, but you cannot tell the truth. You always lie. That that is not fruit of the Spirit. They need each other. You might love somebody, but you're not gentle towards them. That, That cannot be love if you're harsh towards them. All of the fruit characteristics are are the they all grow not pick not choose we do not have a bipolar holy spirit who's really patient in that guy but short fused over there we he is the same yesterday today and forever and and I will say it just one more if he is alive in you you will experience growth in him things that are dead do not grow The last thing I want to talk about for Isaiah is this one key thing, and I want to point it out. And I asked you to underline it, but Isaiah repeatedly said this, I have seen the King. I see the Lord. This once prideful man, young man, walked in one way and walked out another because he saw who was really King. 
the reality of God's glory came down and changed everything. The second story I want us to look at, and it's not as long as the first story, but it's it's also found in the Old Testament and it's about King David. Uh, It's found in 2 Samuel 11. And the the key character in this one is King David. Uh, And we see, we we start reading this story and it kind of doesn't start too well. But if, if you don't know who David is, he's the shepherd boy who killed the bear and killed the lion and killed Goliath. And he, he's the song guy who wrote psalms and those beautiful psalms and the worship songs. There's, honestly, he, he was incredible. But we start reading this story in Samuel 11. And it says that at the time of this story taking place, the kings should have been in battle. They should, be bat- they should have been in battle out on the field with their army, leading their army. But we read this and the story opens and says, while the kings were meant to be at battle, David sat at home. And we pick up the story in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 11, starting at uh, verse 2. It says, one late afternoon, David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace. From his vantage point on the roof, he saw a a woman bathing. The woman was stunningly beautiful. David sent to ask about her and was told, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent his agents to get her. And after she arrived, he went to bed with her. This occurred during the time of a purification following her period. And then she returned home. Before long, she realized she was pregnant. Later, she sent word to David I'm pregnant. And uh, it was not the kind of announcement we see on Instagram now with the awesome gender reveal and, David, we're having a baby. It was bad news. This was bad news. And, and when David heard this, he had to go into, into crisis mode. He had to think, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? And so he thinks, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get her husband Uriah to come back from battle and I'll act like he's, um, he's bringing me a report. But if I can get him to sleep with his wife, he'll think the baby's his. Great, 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 great plan. Plan didn't work because Uriah was such an honourable man. He said, no, I'm not going into my home while the men are still out fighting. I'll, I'll sleep in the servant quarters and I'll wait till the men come home. And so David's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, come over. And he tries to get him drunk. And so, uh, and he thinks this, all right, this has got to work. This has got to work. And it still didn't work. And so we read on in uh, verses 14 to 15 that, that David writes a letter to send back with Uriah for the captain. And this is what it says. Put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Then pull back and leave him exposed so he's sure to be killed. What are we reading here? It's a devastating story. And one that ends in complete tragedy because uh, there's so much death in the end of this story. But what do I want us to get out out of this? And we'll move quickly. Firstly, that acting out of our will and our power never results in life. It doesn't result in life. King David had been anointed as king, so he should have been on the battlefield leading his army. But instead, he took himself out of the will of God and chose the comforts of the flesh and stayed home. And where his eyes should have been on the battle, at home his eyes landed on the desires of the flesh. 
acting out of our will and our power will never lead to life. Secondly, the flesh always takes us out of the will of God. They will never, ever align. Don't, Don't try and find just one thing. Paul says they will never, ever align. We all know that David didn't pray about this decision. He didn't fast about Bathsheba. Should I? Shouldn't I? He acted out of the will of God and it will not align. Your fleshly desires and the will of God do not align. When we have just a concept of God, as we were talking before, as a concept of God, we take our fleshly desires like David did, and we add it to our beliefs about God's and then we package it up and we call it his will. And it will never, ever produce life. You wonder why this fruit that we've been talking about, the characteristics we've been talking about, how come I don't experience that? Perhaps you're out of the will of God. And that's for you and God to search your heart together. Galatians 5.16 says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. This verse is completely contrary to what the world tells us now. Our cultural moment has almost like its own little jingle. Find you, do you, whatever makes you happy. And we we are buying into this lie. We are clinging to it and somehow it's trickling into the church that, oh, how, how would you like to serve that'll make you happy? But God isn't like that. He asks us to give over ourselves to him and he gives us a new heart, a new desire. And Paul says, we're not just meant to do whatever we want to do. Thirdly, the thing that David did here was David made his decisions in secret. You can tell that you're making decisions from a concept of God rather than a reality of God is when you make decisions apart from wise counsel. If you cannot bring the decisions you're making before godly people in your life and ask them to speak honestly into them, then you are making them in secret. And Solomon in Proverbs tells us that we are fools if we think that will produce life. The linking key here between the two stories is that where Isaiah saw the king, David saw himself as king. He was not just king of the land, but in this moment, he was king of his own life. Isaiah said, I've seen the king and I will follow him. I will follow him all the days of my life. And David behaved not just as if he was king of the land, but I'm king of my own life. I'll do what I want. And it ended in tragedy, not just for him, not just for Uriah, but you know what? The sin went to the next generation and his son died too because of it. You think that your worldly or your, your desires just doing what you want just affects you? Uh-uh. It affects the next generation too. You are putting in uh, statutes and behaviours and, and characteristics within your family that you may not even realise. Make sure you go before the Lord and wise counsel and say, what do you think? Spirit or flesh? 
So the key to gaining self-control and all of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit comes down to this. Who is king? Who is king? Is God just a concept to you? That you change, that you mold, that you fit into your lifestyle? Or is he, is the weight of his reality come in and totally crashed and ruined your life? You can tell who king is by what your eyes are looking at. The eyes are on the Lord. My eyes are on the Lord, says Isaiah. I've seen the Lord. David's eyes were on his desires. Now, because... um, We love little things that we can check off, human nature. We love, give me an indicator, Jess, give me a list. I've got a list. All right, I've got a list from the two stories to help figure out. And you know what? Don't just do it on your own. Ask someone to speak into your life if you're really serious about this. Ask somebody to speak into your life as you go through these. But here's four indicators whether you know it's King You or King Jesus, okay? Here we go. King You makes decisions based on, I want. I want Bathsheba. Bring her to me. I want. I want to do this behavior. I want this lifestyle. I want this job. I want this money. I want that relationship. I want. And and people who have king you as the center justified by, I want. Why'd you do that? I want it. Secondly, Justify or make decisions by, I deserve. I deserve this, don't you think? I deserve it. I deserve this. I deserve to spend whatever I want on whatever I want. I deserve to do that. Thirdly, uh, you can tell if it's king you because you say these things. Oh, that's just who I am. That is just who I am. And you know what you say when you say that? Either you're too big for God to change or he's not big enough to change you. Concept of reality. And thirdly, King You makes decisions apart from wise counsel. The list of King Jesus looks very similar, but just the opposite. So here we go. Uh, it makes King Jesus, you can tell when King Jesus, when Jesus is reigning in your life, You make decisions on his will. It may not make sense to the world or your fleshly desires, but it makes sense according to his will. You make decisions or justify your behavior because I serve. Not I deserve, not I deserve God and serve myself. I serve God. Yes, I give my money because you know what? I serve God. Yep, I'm going to move out of my home and go to America. Why? Because I serve God doesn't make sense, but I serve. That was just an example. That's not your example. Uh, Thirdly, instead of saying, this is who I am, you say, this is who he is making me into. Or how come you don't have a short temper like you used to? Because this is who God is making me into. Hey, how come you don't come out drinking anymore? Or because God is making me into something new, something else. Hey, how, how come you're, you're really honest with me now? You used to tell me that you used to say whatever, but now you really are. God is making me into this. And thirdly, when Jesus is king, when God's reality has come in, 
you have the wisdom to go and make your decisions in the company of wise counsel. So where are you? Reality? Has God come in and ruined you? Or is he still a concept? Believe in him, like a lot, but I'm going to mold these edges a little. If you realize this morning that you are living with just a concept of God, here's my advice. Run to him. Run to him. Run into his word, run into worship, run into his presence, run into fellowship with others, run to him with your whole heart. It is the only place that you will find life. And as I wrap up this morning, I want to encourage you with this. If you continue reading the story of Isaiah in in Isaiah 6, you'll see that the best thing he thought about that he had going for him was his speech. He was a communicator. And the moment he got in the glory of God, the weight of God came in and became a reality. What does he say about himself? I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the best of me is no good. And in the very moment of his greatest damnation, God sends one of the angels to pick up a coal from the fire and he goes and he touches his lips. And in the moment, what does that signify? It purifies his lips from where it was unclean and now the fire of God makes it clean and ready to be used for his work. And so in the moment of his greatest damnation, he found salvation in the presence of God. And if you are sitting here today and you just think, I have fallen so far from the mark. I am way off. There is hope for you. There is hope for all of us. And the hope that is set before us today is that in the moments of our greatest failures, we have a king who says, told you you couldn't do it on your own. But hey, surrender. In my will and in my power, you will find great rest, grace that is enough, and freedom like you've never known. Paul says all of this is not to bind you up. It's for freedom we have been set free. It's for freedom we've been set free. And the fruit of the Spirit, you know what? It's not even necessarily for us. It's the fruit that others will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll finish with this in Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh, with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen.